podcast lovers. Welcome back to Hey All You Zombies. You can find out all about the episodes that you've missed at HeyAllYouZombies.com. This is episode number eight. Uh, last week we told you about the usual kind of mix of esoterica that we bring each and every time we do one of these things. Uh, and we also asked you uh, to contribute your thoughts to the movie Pistols at Dawn game that we play. Last week we competed to see who could come up with the best interspecies kiss in a movie. Uh, I think I just checked the results. I feel like I've been trounced in this one. <laughs> yes. might have been, my, my interspecies kiss I don't think was was sweet enough. I don't think that it was friendly enough. I think it scared people. I think it made people uncomfortable. Yeah. And that's why I lost. Well, and you've been winning all the, the time up until this, so it's, it's nice know. to at least have a bit of a change. <laughs> um, but, yeah, no, uh, my entry, which was Kermit the Frog and Miss Piggy, um, took the, the top votes. So um, on behalf of Kermit, uh, hi-oh, Kermit the Frog here. Uh, on behalf of myself and Miss Piggy, I just want to thank you all for voting. Yay! You know, I'll tell you, I, I, I've talked about this before. I hosted a press conference with Kermit the Frog a while ago. When the last Muppets movie came out, I hosted the press conference with him. And, you know, it's an hour of talking to a puppet. And, it's a, you know, it's an, odd, it's an odd experience to do. But then, of course, people were taking photographs and things. I posted them on Facebook. I probably got more reaction to those photographs than anything else I've ever done. Any other interview, any other sort of thing, any of the books I've written, any of that stuff, the Kermit the Frog photos uh, stirred up the most interest. Yeah, it really is kind of a, a world that's divided. You have the entire world of puppets, right. which is marionettes and sock puppets and, you know, uh, the ventriloquist dummies and right. stuff like that. And then you have the Muppets, which are their own different sort of experience. They sure are. The Hensons really have have turned them into actual living things, whereas the others you kind of have to suspend your disbelief a little bit to use your imagination. Not the case with the Muppets, no. No, it's funny because when I was doing the interview, too, um, you know, it's very difficult. But as you're looking down, you have to look, you have to look in the Muppet's eyes, right? Even yeah. though there is another person. I don't want to ruin anything for anyone who doesn't understand how this works. No, yeah. But there is somebody else there. And uh, so in kind of a compromising position. So you have to, you know, only watch the Muppet. And the questions had to be worded very specifically so that uh, you were only asking questions of Kermit that Kermit the Frog in his experience could know. So, you know, uh, it was a press conference, so I interviewed him for quite a while. And then I turned it over to the audience. Then somebody said, <coughs> somebody said, now I understand that the uh, felt for the first Kermit the Frog came from Jim Henson's <laughs> mother and, uh, you know, that from an old coat of hers or something. And Kermit the Frog's like, well, I have no idea. But I mean, I, I don't know what that question means. That question doesn't make any sense to me. <laughs> and because you're, you're, you're not in the, you know, the questions had to be very much in the world as though you were interviewing an actor who happened to be a frog and was having yeah. had a career. That you're directing your questions to the character yeah. uh, and from that character's own sort of reality not the our reality, which is very different. It's very different. But uh, it was fun. I mean, it was, you know, uh, as interviews go, uh, it, was a, it was a bit of a fun thing to do. Cool. Kermit the Frog. Okay. Now, in, the, in the, the realm of animated animals and, uh, you know, kids' entertainment of that sort, I saw uh, Ice Age Continental Drift. Continental Drift. Yeah, is that is, number three or four? Six, I think it's the fourth. Well, it's the it's the fourth one uh, to go theatrical. But there have been other movies that have gone straight to DVD. The character Scrat, that little saber toothed squirrel that has the acorn, is a very popular character. So there's you know uh, I think a Scrat Christmas special. There is a bunch of DVDs and stuff. But for feature length movies, is number four. So it's Manny and Sid the Sloth and you know. Diego, the saber-toothed tiger, all those characters are back. Um, but at one point, a line grabbed me from it, and I wrote it down. And uh, Sid the Sloth, played by John Leguizamo, the sloth with the eyes that are sort right, of, you know. The, the lift and stuff yeah, like that, right. right, yeah. And he says, and what, it's a throwaway line, right? He goes, we fought dinosaurs in the Ice Age. It didn't make sense, but it was fun. Now, it yeah. didn't make sense, of course, because the dinosaurs would have already been extinct by the time... Manny and Sid the Sloth and everyone else was roaming the earth. But it got me thinking about 
um, Hollywood history. Now, movies, and, and, and you know, you go online, Google, you know, uh, inaccurate Hollywood history, and dozens of websites, probably hundreds of websites come up to, you know, sort of pinpoint all the mistakes that Hollywood makes in, you know, the, their, their historical representations of things. Stuff like uh, in Braveheart, uh, Mel Gibson wears a kilt. Well, then that was an older thing. So sure. they sort of made this, you know, sort of pastiche of history and put it all in one. But, you know, it, it, it got me thinking about it and, uh, you know, why people would imagine that Hollywood history would be correct. Why would, you know, the, the, you're telling the dramatic story here. When you go to the, to the movie theaters uh, to see a fictionalized story about, you know, uh, Braveheart, or if you go to see The Beast from 20,000 Fathoms, you don't necessarily expect that, you know, the uh, uh, Redis I think it's called, the Redis in that movie is going to be uh, anatomically correct. This is a, a, a creation. It's a, it's a fiction. It's, a, it's, a, it's a, a, a piece of fiction presented for your entertainment. We're not going to my old history teacher, Mr. Parker's class, to copy down note after note after note and learn something. We're going to be entertained. And... Um, I thought it was sort of clever in the Ice Age movie, the way that they, maybe the most clever thing, maybe possibly the only clever thing in the movie, but the way that they sort of clarified that as a little throwaway funny line uh, that, you know, these movies are meant to be entertainment and not to be uh, history lessons. Right. Well, I can imagine, like, on a movie like Ice Age, you've got a lot of people who are working in various different departments. Yeah. And so it must be really frustrating for those who have to come up with the character designs, who right. invest weeks, if not months, going to natural history museums, trying to make sure that they get the anatomical look straight of the saber-toothed tigers yeah. or the woolly mammoths or things of that nature, only to find out that the writers have created a scenario that kind of undoes all the effort that they've done to try to remain true uh, to the history of it. So I imagine that's partly why those lines kind of get inserted, because there must be battles behind the scenes as well as between fans and science buffs who write in and complain about those things. But I think the, the fallacy here is that we as audiences um, feel a much stronger connection to anything that we have an emotional attachment right. to. Right. And there is a, 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 a deception that happens in our brains that anything that we feel something strongly for must be real because the feeling right. is real. And that, I think, is probably leads a lot of people down that road of thinking that, uh, you know, what they saw on the big screen must be documentary uh, accurate in terms of its realism. Well, absolutely. So I have some examples of bad history. Yay! Oh, just, just, just unusual history. Uh, <laughs> You know, in the movie Gladiator, uh, Emperor uh, Commodius, who's played by Joaquin Phoenix in the film, uh, he was an evil man in the film with a lisp. Apparently, he was neither of those things in, in real life. He, no, he didn't have a lisp. He wasn't the nicest guy, but he wasn't, you know, he was an emperor. And they did, you know, they, they weren't always the nicest people. But he was a pretty good emperor. He was a pretty good ruler. Uh, but uh, he was not killed in the gladiatorial arena by uh, Marcus, the character played by Russell Crowe. In fact, that character, also based on someone from real life, had been dead for about a decade by the time that Commodus was killed. And uh, uh, Commodus was actually killed, uh, strangled in his bathtub by a wrestler. So, completely untrue. Wow. Uh, the Spartans. Now, the Spartans, in the movie 300... There's so, I mean, this movie has, like, absolutely nothing to do with real life whatsoever. So um, there was uh, the battle, the huge battle, uh, yeah. between, you know, the Spartans and the Persians. That actually happened. But instead of there being 7,000 Spartans, like they say there were in the movie, and half a million Persians, <laughs> uh, which would be 71 to 1, uh, there were actually um, about seven, maybe 8,000 Spartans and about 80,000 Persians, still not very good odds, but no. far less than there was. But in real life, they didn't run into action, uh, you know, just with their abs oiled and greased and wearing a thong. They actually wore almost head-to-toe bronze armor. And I'm not sure which makes it easier to fight. You've got this bronze armor, which must have weighed, you know, 100 pounds. Uh, right. So I'm not sure whether going in unadorned, 
uh, or going in with this Lawrence armor would have been which one would have been better. But that's uh, true there. Uh, the movie Season of the Witch. Do you remember this? With uh, it, it was an absolutely terrible movie. Uh, no, I didn't with see it. <laughs> Nicholas Cage. <laughs> Nicholas Cage and Ron Perlman. Just a terrible movie, and it's uh, set in 1272. And Perlman and Cage are uh, knights uh, crusaders who have come back from the the crusades, uh, and they come back, and you know there's werewolves and zombies. That stuff. Not so historically correct. But the other thing that, that is completely wrong about this movie is that they come back and the plague is everywhere. The plague is, you know, they're literally, there's the bring out your dead scenes. Of course, the plague didn't happen for at least 70 years yeah. after the movie's set. So that's completely wrong. Uh, in the movie 10,000 BC, woolly mammoths are used to build the pyramids in Egypt. Now, not only were there no woolly mammoths in the <laughs> desert, <laughs> or anywhere within like hundreds of thousands of miles, you know, probably of this. But the pyramids weren't built until 25 BC, so uh, yeah. there's a bit of a, a time gap there that doesn't really uh, make any sense. Um, in uh, Elizabeth, the Golden Age, uh, the Elizabeth, the Queen, played by Kate Blanchett, is courted by Ivan the Terrible. Unfortunately, he was already dead by the time this movie was set. Uh, he had a stroke while playing chess. Uh, and uh, at the end of um, uh, The Legend of Zorro, California becomes a state. President Lincoln comes and welcomes them and does the whole shebang, makes a little speech, except, you know, it doesn't really make sense because there was an 11-year gap in there. California became a state in 1850. Lincoln wasn't president until 1861. So uh, wow. there's a bit of a problem there. And uh, this one just makes me laugh because it's, I mean, you know, I can see kind of dramatically why you might have Lincoln, because he was uh, more sort of instantly recognizable than, uh, um, I think it was Maynard Fillmore, who was probably president uh, back in when came, when California became uh, a state. So who knows what that guy looks like, right? So you want to have someone, you know, that, that you recognize come in just to make that impact. So I get that. But this one I don't really understand, because there's absolutely no reason for this at all. Uh, there was a, a movie called Krakatoa, East of Java. Now, Krakatoa East of Java was kind of a big budget uh, movie about a, 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 histor a historical disaster film about a, a volcano. I mean, it's kind of an exciting movie to watch. It was big budget, big name cast. But Krakatoa is actually west of Java. Now, how hard would it have been <laughs> to figure that out? So you put it in the title. Krakatoa, east of Java, you know, and yet you're going exactly the opposite way. I just did that. I don't understand. And this movie was nominated for an Academy Award. No, uh, I guess not. Yeah. And uh, then also, uh, for the movie Dinosaurs Rule the Earth, if you uh, want to speak some caveman language, uh, here's a quick little, like, a Berlitz primer for you. Um, come back, you say that Nietzsche. Akita is look and micro is bad. All completely made up. Wow. Yeah. That is my lesson in history, Hollywood history, and I'll get you an F in history class. Yeah, and, and often we're talking about screenwriters here who are just being lazy. It's not that the information is that hard to get a hold of, and it's not that a case that history is boring uh, in terms right. of material to use. I mean, we, you know, it's one of the themes I've been trying to do on this series when I talk about swords being quenched in urine right, right, and people right. eating tortoises on ships. History is really entertaining. They censor it in schools. Right. Uh, they make it boring in schools. And then Hollywood, of course, uh, gets very lazy and just, I don't know why, they, they, they take it on this really odd tangent. Yeah, Braveheart, too. I mean, the, the, I, I get what you mean. Like, it, Braveheart has another scene, uh, and it's a famous battle, and I can't remember the title of it, but it's something of the bridge, blah, 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 of the bridge, right? And, and, and they reenacted in the movie, uh, except that there's no bridge anywhere in the movie, <laughs> you know? And so uh, it, just, it doesn't really make a lot of sense, you know? know. Like, a, a lot of this stuff seems like you would think that it would be fairly easy to, to remedy, especially uh, Krakatoa East of Java made me laugh a whole lot because it's just, you know... <laughs> Well, when I was talking to the gang who uh, were doing all the augmented reality for the dinosaurs of the Royal Ontario Museum, right. um, and they're not paleontologists. They had to kind of talk to the paleontologists right. at the museum in terms of creating their environments. Uh, and they, they joked when their task was to create these um, 
um, these panoramas so that you could stand there and get a feel of what it would be like if you actually lived in that time. You'd look right. around and there would be the landscape. They joked about putting volcanoes. <laughs> That's the standard image that you see on covers of newspapers and magazines, dinosaurs right. with volcanoes and big rocks going through the sky. And yeah. it, none of that happened. I mean, yeah. it just was not the case at all. And Raquel Welch running away from a dinosaur, because, of course, <laughs> humans and dinosaurs existed at the same time. <laughs> yeah, and it's it's just pure laziness. It's not a matter of, uh, I mean, sometimes I'm sure there's a bit of creative license there where uh, an idea is a little bit more easier to express or communicate. Mm -hmm. There's always shortcuts in storytelling, but, I mean, the examples that you're cited, and there are so many examples that you can find where it just, it's people just, are they crazy? You know, I mean, it's just so blatantly wrong. Just Well, you see, well, uh, like something like Elizabeth the Golden Age, uh, you know, and the Ivan the Terrible thing. It's a kind of a minor part of the movie. It's not a great romance. This is more about, you know, how strong a queen she was and, you know, going to war and that sort of thing. Although in reality, uh, she didn't even, she didn't go to war. I mean, she, she led her troops, but she didn't carry a sword. She kind of held a baton, apparently, right. and, and sort of, you know, went, this way, boys, we're going that, you go kill them over there. I'm going to stay over here. You know, so... Uh, but you know, in the in the movie, she's like a warrior princess, and you know, I get that, right? You're you're you know, you're 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 creating uh, a fiction, you're creating a story, an entertainment, not a history lesson. I get that, but the argument, the terrible thing, just kind of seems to me a little cheap. It's like you know what? I know people recognize the name, but why not have you know? Look, hey, Mick Jagger's in the movie. He's, you know, the, the time frame, you know, if you're going to throw the time frame out of the window anyway, you know, why not bring in, you know, somebody contempt, Justin Bieber, then more, more people would show up to see a movie about Queen Elizabeth and Justin Bieber than they would Queen Elizabeth and Ivan the Terrible. Well, and I have to wonder how much of it is kind of revisionist in the sense that I know there are a lot of people who are pushing to have stronger female characters depicted right. in movies. So maybe that's why they wanted Queen Elizabeth to hold the sword yeah. or, you know, the uh, push right now to make sure that any movie that takes place in the past doesn't have people smoking, even though right. everybody did, know, that kind of thing. And I, I get concerned about that because I think that although there's good intentions behind there, they are actually removing the more valuable message that would come from actually, you know, just following the truth. There's a lot of things that yeah. you take from the past that are very valuable, and it's important that in order to pass those on, you have to show them for what they really were. Yeah, no, I think so, too. This whole kind of whitewashing of everything, that, you know, not showing people smoking and that sort of thing. I mean, you know, Mad Men, you got to give it to them. Everybody smokes on that show because everybody did smoke back then. I remember I was a kid, and I remember that, you know, you'd go to parties, and, you know, your parents would have a party, and you'd literally have to, like, blow the, you know, sure. like blow the smoke to you because everybody did. And even, you know, as recently as, like, 10 or 12 years ago, if you had 10 people over to your house, Eight of them probably smoked, and two of them didn't. And everyone, no one really, I don't remember, maybe 10 years ago was different, but, you know, 15 years ago, I don't really remember people asking if they could smoke it or not. So we just sort of assumed that, you know, you don't mind as they're lighting up a cigarette. And uh, now if you have 10 people over, if you have one or two that smoke, it's kind of, you know, surprising. And they go outside and stand out in the snow and enjoy their cigarettes that way. And as someone who, who never smoked, I always had to deal with smoke breaks, watching all my fellow employees go off right. and take 10 minutes just to hang off outside yeah. while I have to keep on working. Yeah, uh, yeah I mean, it, and it's good for shows like Mad Men to kind of remind us of just our own ignorance right. and how it's not something that goes, you have to go back 300 years to see. It actually, you just go back a couple of decades and, and we really are. Uh, monsters in a sense. Well, it is funny because uh, they don't smoke real cigarettes, right? They're, they're in Marlboro packages and all that kind of thing, but they're herbal cigarettes that they're smoking. And apparently the Mad Men set, from what I understand, smells terrible because yeah. those herbal cigarettes are just like, you know, it's like burning oregano or something, you know? Awful. Oh, horrible. <laughs> Um, so this week I wanted to talk about um, uh, birds, birds that can have the ability to mimic technology. Uh, I saw your tweet about this the other day. Yeah. You were going up to the radio station and you came across this bird and I thought, he's obviously uh, drunk at this hour of the morning <laughs> because well, this sounds impossible. Yeah, it's, it's one of the most incredible things. In fact, um, 
Uh, you can experience this by checking out uh, a YouTube video called The Liar Bird, L-Y-R-E. It's one of the most popular YouTube videos of all time. I think about 30 million have probably seen it. Uh, and what it is, it's a clip from a nature documentary that uh, naturalist David Attenborough did, the great whispering David Attenborough yeah. many yes. years ago. Yeah. Uh, he came across this bird called the lyre bird, and it exists in um, southern Australia. It's actually quite a large bird. It's about the size of a, a household cat. It's got this beautiful long tail that is shaped like the musical instrument, the lyre. That's why it's named. But um, it's a mimicking bird, meaning that whereas most birds, they have a particular song. Uh, you see, with birds, amongst bird culture, the way that it works is that girls really dig the guys who have a large repertoire of uh, songs. Right. Most birds have one song, but they kind of improvise. They riff right. on it to try to right. increase the repertoire. Like jazz singers. They're like right. jazz singers, yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. And, and the bird who can come up with the most variations <laughs> of his song, he gets the ladies. Right. But there are, are mimicking birds who their strategy is to literally listen to all the songs that other birds do and to mimic it almost like a human, uh, like an animal tape recorder. Right. And the lyre bird is one of the best that's out there. So if you watch the video, not only can you see the lyre bird mimic the sounds of other birds like the kookaburra, which is that very, you know, you hear it in all the jungle movies, that ooh, ah, yeah, yeah, kind yeah, of. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, but he can also mimic the sounds of mechanical things around him. And so we see the bird mimic the sound of a camera shutter going off, and then right. a mechanical motor wind, and then eventually chainsaws. And, and not just do a really good imitation, but I mean a pitch-perfect reproduction where if you heard this bird behind you, you would swear that somebody was coming up behind you with a chainsaw. Chasing you with a chainsaw, yeah. Freak wow. you right out. It is, it, you know, no matter how many times I see this video, it's absolutely incredible. And when I first saw it, I thought, I'm never going to experience this right. unless I'm fortunate enough to go on an expedition for Discovery Channel or someplace like yeah. that, and they send me to Papua New Guinea, yeah. I'd really love that, yeah. or Madagascar or someplace like that, I'm never going to have an experience as magical as that. Uh, and I've done research and I've found out that there are other mimicking birds out there, not as powerful as the lyre bird, but, you know, I live in Toronto. In Toronto, we have a lot of boring animals generally. That's the rule. Well, lately this year, Toronto, for some reason, has really attracted a great diversity of birds. I really encourage you to listen very carefully. This is how I sort of discovered this bird. Because uh, a couple of months ago, in the middle of spring, I was going home at 4.30 in the morning. And at that time, 4.30 in the morning, it's still night. Uh, the city is so quiet. There's nobody moving, not even a homeless person. It doesn't even look like a zombie movie. It just looks like it's silent. And when I stepped out into the street, I was blown away because I, all I could hear were about 3,000, 5,000 birds just singing at the same time. And as I walked through the city, it was like that all across the city. And what has happened is that we've collected this huge population of songbirds, and they have figured out that for every day there's only about an hour and a half that they have to sing without having to compete against the rest of the city. So if you get up at 4.30 in the morning, it is amazing. Wow. It, it's, wow. it's like Ludwig von in uh, Clockwork Orange. I step right. out and suddenly it's this massive chorus of birds <laughs> all singing around, blah, 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 and it just was otherworldly. I don't think I've heard as many musical notes happening at the same time. I couldn't tell you the different species of the birds. Yeah. My experience, I was like, where are all these birds? Because during the day, all I hear are boring sparrows and, and yeah. you know birds that just kind of do the equivalent of, hey, every couple yeah. of minutes, and that's yeah, about yeah. it. Uh, so I've kind of unconsciously have been aware that we have all these different species of birds. I've been listening to them. And this week, after I finished my radio piece at the news station, News 1010, I was walking home in the middle of the day, not what I expected. And suddenly, I could hear Ludwig Vaughn. I suddenly <laughs> hear Beethoven's Ninth coming out, this chorus of birds. And so I expected to find hundreds of birds in a clump of trees somewhere. But as I came closer, I realized it wasn't many birds, it was just one bird. It was literally one bird sitting on a post, and he was reproducing the repertoire of about 20 other birds. And it was astonishing. And what, I mean, I had, like, reproducing the, the songs of these birds, sort of like a big medley? Yes. So this is a bird that has listened to um, 20 different species of birds yeah. out there, and has duplicated each one of their songs. And then 
sits there performing one song after the next, sometimes uh, performing two songs at the same time. <laughs> and what he's doing is he is showing off to the ladies just how right. talented he is in terms of collecting other birds' songs. So, and that's something that I had to sit there and listen and realize that I was only listening to one bird. And I waited because I thought, well, you know, some birds, they can do about three or four different songs. Right. This guy kept it going for 45 minutes. Wow. I timed it for 45 minutes. I must have heard about 20 different songs. Right. But I also heard in the mix, uh, I heard a car alarm that, right. you know, yeah, yeah. Kind of over and over. And then also the sound of a, of a delivery truck backing up. That, yeah, yeah, yeah. that was incorporated into the wow. mix as well. Uh, and, I mean, this is a, a little tip I'll tell you. Uh, fortunately for me, I have my iPhone with me. Right. And installed on my iPhone, I had the North American Audubon, Audubon Field Guide for Birds. Of course you did. Of course, of course I did. you have that on there. Yeah. Uh, and I went through the trees to try to find this bird because I just was really curious as right. to who it was. And I'm Googling as I did, you know, mimicking birds, North America. Where is this bird? What could it possibly be? And there's a very short list of birds up here in Canada. And it's right along the border that it could be. It could be a grackle, it could be right. a thresher, that kind of thing. And uh, I'll show you here. Uh, I ended up... Uh, doo -doo -doo -doo. So I ended up taking this photo, and I'm showing you that, not because it's a very good one, but it's a very small bird sitting right there. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and what's important about this is that you can see the, the shadow and the outline of the bird. He's got a head that's a little bit like a blue jay. Right. Uh, he's got this very long tail that looks like it could be the handle for a spoon, and when you pull up the Audubon Field Guide, it actually gives you <laughs> the silhouettes of the birds. So you oh, can actually yeah, look it up right. by the shape of it. So I, I looked at it, and I realized that it could have been a mockingbird and a thresher. Or a gnat uh, catcher. Gnat catcher. Could be any one of those. Yeah. And then um, what did it for me, when I looked it up, uh, it turned out to be this guy here, which is a northern mockingbird. Mm. And at first glance, it doesn't oh, look mean, like... Uh, Mimus polyglotus. Oh, very sharp of you, Richard. <laughs> <laughs> but um, the reason that I know it's him is because as I watched him, he performed this move right here. Oh. Uh, and as he sings, he would leap up into the air and do this, hello, ladies, and display really? his wings out. Wow. And that's the pattern that you would end up seeing. Uh, were there other birds? Like, when, Could you see a bird around that he was trying to impress or... or was he no, just kind of like doing this and this was either a rehearsal or he was trying to attract birds? Well, he's trying to attract. Uh, I've been doing some reading and apparently I'm very lucky to have seen this because right. northern mockingbirds, usually when they sing, it's only at night and only by the full moon and during spring. Right. Yeah. Um, but right now it's mating season. And so his behavior is he will pick out two um, tall poles like that and he will move from one. He'll do a set list at one pole. Right. and then move over to the next pole, and in the middle of performing, we'll stand up and do this whole... Wow. Yeah, exactly, yeah. two shows. And then when he's done, he will quickly become very quiet, and he'll move off to the side and look to see if there are any ladies that have right. shown up in response. And apparently the, the girl mockingbirds will move around the city, and they'll just quietly sit off to the side and watch the males perform. They'll listen and sort of eventually decide which guy that they're going to go with. Wow. Um, what's interesting is that uh, the Audubon Field Guide for Birds, and I'll pull it up here. Doo -doo -doo. There we are. If I pull up my Northern Mockingbird, I was trying to see if it was a match. And so I right. pulled up the, the Northern Mockingbird on my iPhone here. And uh, it has, of course, the bird songs listed inside. So if I pull it up here. Uh. All right. Now, I didn't know it was going to be that loud. Right. When I played it, you can hear it all throughout. And what ended up happening was there were a couple of other birds around, but everything, all the birds suddenly went really quiet. Right. Like, who the hell is that? Yeah. They sat back and kind of waited. But uh, like, yeah. oh, great. Uh, you know, Joe is here. Going to steal. He's, he's the best singer in the bunch of us. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Wow. So, yeah, no, I mean, I'm... I'm very, very pleased that I had that experience. I have officially heard a bird uh, perform, you know, a piece of technology, but also the, the range of songs that, that right. this bird exists, and it did quite a range. Some of the, the, the birds that do mimicry, uh, they can do maybe 10 or 12 songs. This guy did close to 20. Apparently, northern mockingbirds have been recorded doing up to 
50 different songs wow. uh, just wow. within an hour. And the way that they perform this is that um, you and I have a larynx, right. which exists in the middle of our throat. Birds have what's called a, a syrinx, which uh, Rush fans will recognize as the temple yeah, syrinx. The temple syrinx, yeah, yeah. That's right, yeah. And a, a syrinx actually sits down in the chest uh, and connects to each lung and gives each lung a set of lips. And so the birds can use one lung to sing a song and then another lung to sing a another song wow. at the same time. Wow. And when they take breaths, they can take a breath for every note. You and I have to wait till we're done at the end of a sentence right. to take a breath. Bird doesn't have to do that. So in terms of being these little field recording devices, you know, birds and their ability right. to mimic, we as human beings will never, ever, ever be able to match it. And if you ever get the chance to just listen to the birds that are out there, uh, I think that you're going to be blown away by, by what's out there, especially this year. You know, if they, uh, if they were to form a band, I would call the band Lung Lips. That is a great name Lung. for a band. Lung Lips. <laughs> Lung Lips and the Micro Breathers. Yes. Yeah. Ladies and gentlemen, put your hands together for Lung Lips and the Micro Breathers. I like that. I like that a lot. Well, um, my, my next topic, uh, not nearly as uh, uh, sort of interesting as that, I don't think, but, you know, there's, you know, everyone's got one of these now. You've got a, if you don't have this phone, you have something that looks like this phone. And, uh, you know, more and more now um, on the subway things, I'm, I'm seeing more and more people watching things, not playing games. You still see that a lot. But I'm seeing people watching television and watching movies and things. And someone wrote into Roger Ebert recently and asked uh, if um, watching things on your phone, the exact question was, uh, is watching a movie on a cell phone an artistic crime? And Ebert wrote back, and he said, well, you know, probably. Probably it is. He says, I've never done it. But then I remember as a budding movie critic and or budding movie lover, I grew up watching classic cinema on a small, portable, black-and-white TV. That's where I fell in love with Citizen Kane, Sergeant York, Yankee Jolandy goes on, and all the other uh, Hollywood classics. I was 10 or 11. And I couldn't have cared less about the aspect ratio or poor lighting. All I cared about was decent reception and sound. And if it had that, uh, then I have to say uh, that at that time and age, I had as fine an artistic experience as I could have hoped for. So I read that, and I, I'm not a big fan of watching movies. I rarely even, quite honestly, watch movies at home. Uh, and, you know, I do, and we have in the next room kind of a big TV uh, that we can watch them on. But I still think that the best way to see movies is at the movie theater. But it got me thinking back to when I was first, uh, you know, sort of formulating my ideas about what movies I liked and, and uh, what I would go see. And, you know, it, it made me rethink my attitude about uh, people that I see watching movies on cell phones because right. I grew up in a, uh, a small town with uh, a huge movie theater, 1,500 people in the town, and a movie theater that seated 900 people. It's because the town, uh, at one point, looked like it was going to become uh, like a big, uh, uh, probably like a port city. And it never happened. But in those few hopeful years when people thought it was going to happen, they built an opera house, and they built a huge like city hall, and they built uh, a a, a hotel that had like a dining room that could seat 500 people. There was, you know, people were optimistic at the turn of the last century, you know, the last century. And uh, so we had all these great buildings, which eventually got repurposed into other things. And one of them was the opera house became a movie theater. And so I grew up in this great movie palace, but because we were at the very butt end of the distribution chain, we only used to get movies much later on. And they were in rough shape by the time I got them. So I grew up watching uh, movies and, and things uh, that were in no way uh, being projected in the kind of ideal circumstance. But I still loved them. I still loved watching them. And they still gave me appreciation for them. And I think, you know, moving forward, you know, watching movies uh, at home on television – 
I'm a little bit younger than Ebert, quite a bit younger than Ebert. So, you know, I didn't watch them on a, on a black and white television that was this big. But I watched them, you know, they would have been cropped for television, so the aspect ratio is long. They would have been edited because, of course, you've got to, you know, make sure you can hit those commercials every 10 minutes. So they wouldn't have been the director's vision exactly. But um, what they were, though, was uh, um, the gateway into watching something that was entertaining and um, gave me gave me uh, an appreciation for the film and maybe more so what I'm trying to say I guess is gave me an appreciation for the content of the film and not so much I'm not as it turns out a big stickler for aspect ratio and that kind of thing so I have now changed my opinion about watching movies on cell phones. And because it just sort of made me deepen the, you know, think about the experience a little bit more and think about what it means to watch a movie. And I'm not sure, you know, if you're watching a film on your cell phone, if you're listening through earphones, like I'm listening through right now, the sound's pretty good. So you can't really complain about the sound so much. It's the, the, just the size of the picture. And then it made me think, given some of the awful ways that I've seen movies, uh, in some of the, the weird movie theaters that I've been around the world, or when I used to go to the Bloor Cinema years and years and years ago, um, you know, to see Repulsion because uh, it wasn't available on uh, video and there might be a reel missing or scenes would be so scratched you could barely see them. And yet I would sit there and watch them and try and make something out of it. It's not that big a jump then to think that, you know, you can you can appreciate and learn and still enjoy a movie on a screen that's only a few inches by a few inches. Yeah, I think that if you're really into something, uh, your mind compensates yeah. for it. Yeah. And so if there's a movie that you see on a small screen and you love, your memory of it, your impression of it is going to be large. In fact, yeah. I think with every movie you've seen, your impression and your memory of it is larger than whatever medium that you saw it on. Um, I do think, though, that... If you're always seeing content for the first time on the small screen, then it does reduce the uh, percentile chance that you're going to walk away falling in love with it. I think it's easier to fall in love yeah. with material if it's in its original theatrical kind of experience. I, I, but. I, I guess you're right. I mean, see, I, I think, though, as I was sort of letting this just roll around in my head a little bit, I thought, you know, uh, with IMAX, like, not only is 3D made, like, a big comeback. Now, it's a controversial comeback. People only go when it's something. Yeah. Kids' movies tend to do okay in 3D, uh, but mostly, given the choice between if a movie comes out in 2D and in 3D, the 2D typically does better, even though the 3D movies are, you know, there's a premium to go see them, they're more expensive. Uh, but IMAX is now making a, IMAX is back. Apparently, the, the Dark Knight Rises was shot on IMAX, is going to be shown in IMAX theaters. And, and, you know, those are big, grand experiences at the movies. But I'm not sure, though, that if you, uh, if you love it and if you want to see it and if you're just there to see the content, that you need to be bowled over by the spectacle of it. That, you know, if the performances are good, if the story engages you, whether you're watching it on this or on, uh, on a big screen, the experience will, of course, be somewhat different. But if you're engaged with it, it's not going to be that much different. No, and I mean, you think of um, any experience where somebody's had to see something through a keyhole, uh, <laughs> is just, as, uh, just as valuable as whether they had a chance to see it through a window right. or with the door wide, wide open. Yeah, yeah. I noticed we're having some technical issues, but we're going to plow yeah. on. Okay, yeah, you, you, you just you sounded like a robot uh, just for a moment there. I don't know whether I'm sounding robot-like right now or not. Cool. <laughs> uh, but that's pretty much all I have to say about it. I mean, I just, I liked uh, Ebert's take on it. You know, he was saying, like, you know, not exactly an artistic crime, but if you're engaged by it, and, and I agree with it, it made me, it sort of, to me, triggered thoughts of, of the way I've seen movies in less than ideal situations, and yet was still taken by them. So I think it, it can work either way. Right. Okay. 
Well, uh, another topic that I wanted to hit upon this week is um, zombie romance novels, uh-huh. which I thought was very apt for uh, our podcast. Yes. Uh, and this is kind of interesting. I, I sort of tripped across this by accident. I've done a lot of research, and it's a very fascinating kind of story. I mean, you and I are not too familiar, or at least I assume you're not familiar. I know I'm not familiar with romance novels, the entire world of it. I, don't I know mean- that it's very popular and it makes a great deal of money. Um, right. Apparently, just pure romance novels. Are you there? Yeah, I'm here. We must be having difficulties with the server. Okay, cool. Um, pure romance novels, what they refer to as bodice rippers, uh, apparently yeah. earn about $1.3 billion every year. Mm-hmm. But um, in addition to that, thanks to the popularity of, say, the Twilight series right. or the Suki Stackhouse series, you have this entire growth of supernatural romance books. So, for example, you've got vampires, you have werewolves, demons are apparently a very big topic, as well as the opposite of that. You have a lot of religious... Uh, romance novels, and right. each one of those categories does anywhere between five to seven hundred million dollars themselves. It's quite That's crazy. crazy. Uh, there was a woman in 2009, and her name is, if I pull it up here, uh, Lori Perkins. Just right. wanted to make sure I got her name right. In 2009, Lori Perkins was the editor of a publishing house called Ravenous Romance. <laughs> she was attending a convention that was devoted towards romance novels. Right. And someone in the audience stood up and said, you know, um, considering all the the popularity of vampires and werewolves, do you see any prospect for zombies to be in the world of romance? And what I like about Laurie Perkins is that her immediate instinct was to say, yes, why not? Um, And what happened was that when she got back, she found all of her colleagues, all the people that worked in just recoiled in horror and said, what are you, are you kidding rotting corpses and romance, there's, there's no room for those two things to come together. Uh, but what I like about her personality was that she felt that since everybody was so vehemently saying no, right. that meant that she had to make it happen. Right, right. And so she ended up saying, okay, we're going to do an anthology of zombie romance stories, and she published it. Uh, it's called Hungry for Your Love. Uh, <laughs> it had great... Um, Great short story titles such as I Heart Brains, Last Times at Ridgemont High, and they explored the idea of what could be possible with zombie romances. Right. So they actually had stories where people fell in love with zombies, where zombies fell in love with zombies, and they had uh, rather explicit scenes that they simply described as zombie smut. Right. And I guess the book did relatively well because it now has given forth this entire genre of zombie romance novels that are out there. There's lots of other publishers that get into it. Um, And what has happened is that people have realized that, well, as you expect, there's no real appetite for (laughs) horrific romance. Like they don't eat one another at the end or anything like that. That's how they consummate their love, maybe. Yeah. (laughs) Well, the idea... Yeah, the, the, the idea that you've got a, a story that delves into sort of the visceral aspect of it, uh, that's not really right. the kind of what people want. But instead, what they realize is that the situation itself is wonderful, where you have people who are trying to survive, who are being pushed together, right. uh, have to face the world together. Uh, that kind of thing uh, creates a, a platform for which you can have romance. And I, I want to, I mean, I'm not going to delve too much into the, the various storylines that are out there, but I thought I'd share some of the fun titles that people have come okay. up with. Uh, if you do a search online or go to Amazon, you can buy books such as I Kissed a Zombie and I Liked It, uh, uh, Married with Zombies, mm-hmm. Dearly Departed, uh, yes. You Are So Undead to Me, <laughs> and one of my favorites, Frankie and Formaldehyde. <laughs> Um, but what's interesting is that this has been going on for about three years, and it itself, as a sub- subgenre to the romance novel uh, industry, has created its own subgenre. So not only do we now have zombie romance or zom-rom 
uh, books, <laughs> but we now have lesbian zombie romance novels. That there's an entire publisher called Noble Romance, and they've come up with an entire line that they call Lesbians versus Zombies. And uh, that has come up with titles such as uh, Zombie with Flowers in Her Hair, <laughs> or my favorite, Dead Kittens Don't Purr. Oh. Uh, and, yeah, <laughs> and they take a look at various scenarios where, again, it's, it's, it's uh, people who have, were separated while everybody was alive but then sort of right. find themselves again when everybody's dead, right. or um, two people who may not realize that they, you know, who sort of switch sides because now there are very few people left in the world, so that creates new romantic possibilities. Or my favorite, there's a book out there in which two lesbians uh, form together as a team and pull a... Um, uh, go down to the southern states and just beat up on a lot of redneck zombies. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Well, I like that. I like Zomcom. I like that yeah. a lot. Or Zomrom. I, I wonder if there are Zomromcoms yet. Oh, there probably is. Probably. And, I would, and I'm, I'm thinking here that I'll make a prediction. I expect that there's going to be movies that will come out later on yeah. that will explore uh, just this kind of possibility. Because it seems like these days... Any zombie movie seems to pick up some form of distribution. It may not make a lot of money, but at least it's out there. People watch it. There's an appetite for it. So yeah, I know zombies have you know so in a very unlikely way, I think, have sort of come back with a vengeance. I mean, you know, you have The Walking Dead, which I thought I know it's based on a series of you know books and things, like comic books uh, that have been very popular. But I wasn't sure that the television show would have much life beyond the first season, even though just given the nature of the story, uh, you know, you could, you, there are so many characters and you can, you know, you can, if you're on the run, uh, you can, you know, change up locations. You can do all sorts of things to keep the story interesting. I just wasn't sure if audiences would be interested. And as it turns out, they are. Are we still having technical difficulties? Uh, are you okay? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We had a, a server, uh, yeah, I got a little message up that said that there was a disconnect with the server, but we seem to be back. Uh, hopefully, this whole experience has been better for ourselves. Right. Well, maybe we should uh, jump to Movie Pistols at Dawn All right, so before we lose uh, our uh, connections. Yeah, we'll, we'll get to the very end here. Uh, we're going to end again with another uh, round of Movie Pistols at, yes. uh, at Dawn. This time, we're going to pull our, our resources from a website called Doom Cakes, uh, doomcakes.tumblr.com. What has happened here uh, is that uh, movie buff, uh, I better get his name just correct here, uh, Tom Blunt happened to notice that in movies there are lots of cakes, but nobody actually eating the cakes. Uh, and, you know, you, somebody might bring out a cake, it makes for a wonderful scene, but then something usually happens to interrupt uh, the, the actual process of eating the cake. My feeling here is that filmmakers learned a long time ago that cakes make wonderful visuals on screen up until the point that you have people eating them, which is not exciting. Sitting there with people with mouthfuls of cake, horrible. So everyone always interrupts that scene. And right. uh, what he's noticed is that it usually goes one of two ways. Either it's bad news for everybody in the movie, somebody's going to die, or they're going to get into an argument, or it's bad news for the cake, the cake itself is going to get destroyed. Uh, one example I thought was very funny that's on his blog is that he talks about the birds. Alfred Hitchcock's The Birds, uh, it's a complete mystery as to why the birds attack, except... Yeah. Having read his website, you go and watch the movie, the moment it's the cake that's at fault. Yeah. So um, we're going to each pick our own doom cake uh, scenario. And Richard, uh, I'm going to let you go ahead first. Okay, well, uh, the other day I was walking uh, up Church Street uh, in Toronto, and I veered off. I went over to uh, Jarvis Street, and I saw a sign that said, Carrie, location shoot. And they're remaking the movie Carrie with Chloe Moretz in the role that uh, Sissy Spacek made famous. And it got me thinking about that movie. So in Doom Cakes, on the, on the uh, uh, doomcakes.tumblr.com site, uh, he has a scene from uh, Carrie. <laughs> and it made me laugh because I, I, I loved uh, Piper Laurie in this movie as Carrie's mom. Uh, 
and some of the 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 uh, phrases and things that she uh, said in that movie uh, have stayed with me for years, and I haven't seen it for a long time. But uh, when Carrie wants to go to the prom and she puts on a dress that is a little bit more revealing than her mother would like it to be, and she says, Carrie, cover up. People will look at your dirty pillows and, <laughs> and things like that. So, <laughs> so uh, the, the, the cake scene in this, uh, they're, they're having dinner and they're, about to, they're, they're finishing up, and uh, Carrie hasn't touched her cake. She hasn't touched her apple cake that they're having. And Carrie says, it gives me pimples, mama. And uh, Mrs. White, played by uh, Piper Laurie, says, pimples are the Lord's way of chastising you. And it's a great line. And then, of course, you know, uh, minutes later, all hell breaks loose in the prom. So I think, uh, I think uh, the, the, the scene from Carrie, the apple cake in Carrie, will be my doom cake du jour. Well, let's see. For a second serving here, uh, my doom cake that I've chosen is from The Silence of the Lambs, one of my favorite films. And I really liked it because uh, on the website, doomcakes.tumblr.com, he really sort of explores that scene. Uh, and what I'm talking about here is the very end of Silence of the Lambs, and yeah. I'm going to try to avoid any kind of spoilers here, right. although considering there's, what, the four television series in the work. Yeah. Right. It, it shouldn't be a surprise to anybody that Clary Starling and uh, Hannibal Lecter continue on in terms of their yeah. storylines. But the, the scene in question is the very end of The Silence of the Lambs. Uh, the the, the um, drama is now finally at an end. The serial killer that everybody's chasing has been uh, prevented from going on his rampage. And Clary Starling at the end is getting her graduation. She's finally becoming right. Special Agent Starling and has handed her badge. And to mark the occasion, of course, a cake is brought out. And uh, what I like about this is that the cake itself, although the cake should be very feminine, in this case they've stamped it with the shield of the uh, right. CIA. So it looks very masculine, uh, uh, which is one of the issues that she's facing in right. the movie. But as they cut the cake, most people don't notice this, but as they take out that big, huge butcher knife that a serial killer would use, and they cut the cake, they actually cut out the word justice. Ah, wow. Nice little, wow. Nice little harbinger there that maybe yeah. justice wasn't fully served, if you yeah. understand. And the moment that that cut is cake, uh, that, that slice of justice is removed from the cake, that's when somebody comes over to, uh, to Clarice and says, phone, phone call, call for you. Wow. Right. And when she wow. picks it up, of course, that's when she realizes things are not finished. They're not over. There's more to come, you know? That's hilarious. Well, well you know what? Um, I'm going to say this now. I think you might have the winner there. I think you might have the winner there, although pimples on the Lord's way of chastising <laughs> you, I think is pretty awesome, too. So uh, that's Movie Pistols of Dawn. You can find it at our website. There's a, a, a place to vote there. There's a poll there. You can either vote for Chris and his slice of justice or me and my pimples from Carrie uh, at heyallyouzombies.com. So check that out. And if you have any thoughts on doom cakes or anything that we've talked about today, whether or not you like watching movies on your cell phone, uh, any of the things that we've talked about, uh, drop us a line. You can do that very easily through the website, and we'd love to hear from you. 